Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice, and I'm joined by Haven Pell, who is the pundificator on his blog and his social media exploits. Haven, how are you? Good morning. How are you, Fraser? Well, we're hunkered down in New York trying to figure out what the coronavirus is going to do or not do to us. And the stock market is going all over the place. It's a weird time to be around. Well, I'm hunkered down in one of the only states that doesn't seem to have a coronavirus outbreak, and that is Idaho. And I am in Sun Valley, and I wish I could report that the snow was better, but it's good enough. Well, you got two good things going on there. No virus and a little winter skiing, so good stuff. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about decision by PR, which is something that I think we've watched over the course of years where I think our general background on that would be to say that when people are trying to make decisions based on public approval, that it ends up leading to bad policy, either at the local, state, or federal level, or at the business level. What got you thinking about decision by PR this week? It was something that I may not even work. There is a person called Naomi Seibt, S-E-I-B-T, and she is a 19-year-old blonde German And she is now being held up as the counterweight to the famous Greta Thunberg. And Naomi Seibt is an anti-climate change person. And it is hard for me to imagine that she knows any more about climate change than does Greta Thunberg. And yet, this seems to be the way that people want to mold public opinion is to have dueling European female teenagers. And that struck me as a pretty dumb idea. It is sort of putting an avatar on a cause, I think is in many ways, I don't know if it's public relations 101, but it's certainly a well-worn strategy. When we talk about Greta and some of the things that she's been involved with, climate change is a controversial position. There is discord amongst people as to legitimacy, scientific backing, it's extremely polarizing. And Greta sort of became this avatar for climate change and sort of the negative effects of it. Where do you see her and her rise to fame on this and as a foil to this new person? In terms of a public relations strategy, I mean, you'd have to say that Greta Thunberg is one of the most successful that's ever been. She went from essentially nowhere to Times Person of the Year. And I have a sufficient distrust for the public relations or spindustry that I think that there are wizards of Oz behind the curtain who are manipulating both of these people. And I don't buy the publicity. I don't buy the thesis that this is a naturally occurring person. I think that they are both created. So when we create these fixtures or these representatives of causes, it strikes me that it's very dangerous. I I know there's a lot of backlash with Greta. She's gotten all sorts of online hate. People start going into her background, calling into question whether 
she, as being a representative on the topic, is that she doesn't even think those thoughts or that she's been programmed by her parents. There's sort of background as to whether or not she's on the spectrum or has Asperger's. It sets up for a really poisonous set of circumstances for the individual, especially if they're not really part of it. I think you're right. And I guess I'm going to guess because I don't really know, but that Greta is right around 15 or 16. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's something in that range. And in a sense, this is a life decision for her. And I don't see the question of climate change going away in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think it's going to continue. And she is indelibly a part of that. I mean, she's made a career choice or a career choice has been made for her from which there is no escape. And boy, I'm so glad that none of the choices I would have made at that age, I could escape from all of them. So for the person who was, what was her name again, who's set up on the other side of the issue? Naomi Seipt. Naomi Seipt. So what do we know about her? I've heard her name and I've seen her sort of postured up there. And I guess the rest of the news cycle has crowded out the climate change debate for at least a few weeks. How has she risen to prominence on this? I think that's a very interesting question. I'm sitting at my laptop at the moment and I'm going to Google because, frankly, the only thing I saw was this one story in The New York Times. I haven't heard her name again. And as I say, all she is is, as far as I know, all she is is a German 19-year-old. And here is something. The Guardian's headline says, Naomi Seipt, anti-Greta activist called white nationalist. Oh, it's crazy because when you start having debates where the debaters are pulled out of central casting as opposed to any sort of expertise, <laughs> it doesn't strike me as being very productive. Here's a, just looking at this, I mean, this is really is real time. Naomi Seipt is a German climate change denier. Well, there's a pretty loaded phrase. She's employed by the conservative Heartland Institute, which markets her as the anti-Greta. She has been a speaker at multiple events organized by conservative think tanks, according to Wikipedia. So right, I was going to say, I don't hear PhD in climate science in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't. I mean, I think she is a spokes kid, a spokesperson, and somebody has decided that the way to get people's attention is, and I don't want to be accused of being a sexist, but choosing a teenage European long-haired blonde girl, as opposed to letters signed by a thousand scientists, clearly is a PR strategy. And neither side seems to have chosen a boy. So we'll get away from the climate science aspect from it for a minute. We're in the throes of coronavirus and the different uh, machinations of the public understanding around that. We were talking before we started recording about the idea that there's a real normalization process within certainly U.S. culture and definitely world culture here as the different countries try to struggle. They struggle with trying to figure out how to deal with this. On the one hand, we've got the flu, which is highly contagious, but not very fatal. You've got at the other end of the spectrum, you know, pick out Ebola, which is highly fatal, but not as contagious. And coronavirus, COVID-19, which is somewhere in between. Where do you see the potential on the PR front here? We see the U.S. response from the government has been certainly heavy PR, a little bit light on things like testing materials, understanding, etc. Whereas in Italy, they're basically shutting down 
in quarantining 10 million people and trying to reduce the speed at which the disease vectors can veer off and capture more people. Where do you see this playing out? Or do you think we're going to have some sort of fulcrum event where we go from sort of drifting around hashtag fake news and minimizing the impact here to something a little more full frontal assault? It's interesting. I have a family member who I would not describe as a catastrophist. He is not that at all. And he has been calling me and asking whether I have been thinking as carefully as I should have been about the coronavirus. And he is taking quite a hawkish position on the severity of this problem. And I respect his abilities. And I think his thinking tends to be, he's a pretty futurist, forward-thinking sort of a person. And I was trying to come to grips with the fact that he is not risk-averse at all. But when he sees something that seems to be worth considering, he goes all in. And overnight, I was trying to think about why his view is somewhat unusual. And I came to that curve that you've probably seen before called the innovation adoption life cycle. And it is the idea that a new thing, and I suspect the coronavirus would qualify as a new thing, is first adopted by innovators, then early adopters, then the early majority, then the late majority, then the laggards. And it looks to me as if he is really in the category of innovators, and he's sort of a first adopter on this concern that we really don't know. All the figures are suspect. But he goes to the side that this is vastly more serious than other people are saying. Now, the other challenge is the consequence of people believing that is good for some people and bad for others. It is not a good thing for the president, for example, for people to adopt this view that this is something that is significantly more serious than some might want us to believe. You know, I sort of look at it and say the consequences of being wrong are massive. You know, I think the idea that, especially for elderly people, there's a real fear component where if you're over 80 and you contract this, you're in bad shape. It strikes me that it's an area where an abundance of caution isn't a bad thing. Yet at the same time, I read somewhere, and I like the idea of this quote, is that self-quarantining doesn't quite work in democracies <laughs> and that you have people who are going to kind of go for it and do what they want to do no matter what, and that the public health component is odd. And then you have, you add on to that every Hollywood movie component where you have people running around in hazmat suits and firing some sanitary concoction at people to try to kill viruses. It, it strikes at a very primordial fear, I think, for a lot of folks. From a PR perspective, I think there's very few ways to win this. It's sort of like being head of Homeland Security. No one really pays attention to you unless something goes horribly wrong. How do you project the calm when what you're dealing with is so unknown and the numbers, while not frantic, I mean, this is not a 90% fatality rate. We're veering towards the zombie apocalypse. How do you think you structure a plan around this so that you're not exacerbating people's fears but you're honest with them. I think it's extremely difficult. You're dealing with what remains a relatively low probability. What is the chance that you are actually going to get the coronavirus is probably fairly small. 
Now, it's fairly small as compared to 50-50 odds. I mean, so let's say it's 10%. But for a person, and you were kind enough to say over 80, but there are many people who say over 65, and that is me, who say that demographic, if they get it, there's a 10% fatality rate. And that's a pretty significant number. You have a low probability, high consequence event. I don't do anything that I think gives me a one in 10 chance of dying. That's just too much. It's crazy to think about that, but it is a way that it could crimp on people's personal freedoms and whether you're traveling or doing anything like that that people enjoy, where all of a sudden that shuts down. It's one of those things we in the United States, I don't think have really dealt with anything like that in a sense of scale since, I guess, I have to go back to 2001 and 9-11, where people really had to rethink how they lived their lives. And that had ramifications as it related to airport security and a different way of viewing people and sort of a different mode of traveling. I mean, I guess it's tough for me to tell whether we're going to get to that level of change in worldview for most folks with this virus. I mean, we go back to Ebola and H1N1 and avian bird flu. And, you know, I was telling someone before, I said, what happened to Zika? I thought that was a big deal. And that all kind of went away. Are we positioned in the same way here for something that's causing a lot of concern that may be forgotten in six months? Another way to look at that is to think back to any decision that you might have made in the face of one of those things and decide looking backward whether any effort to be overcautious actually hurt you in any way. There's nothing in my life at the moment that I couldn't be overcautious about with essentially no consequence. If I were overcautious and said, I am not going to get on an airplane. I'm going to call up the rent-a-car company and see if I can drive the car back to Washington. So what? I can do that. And I may laugh at myself in September, but there's no consequence to doing it. And I'm not sure that some of the trips that people had planned are going to be life-changing events if they don't happen. Now, they are life-changing events for, I would not like to be in the cruise ship business right now. I can think of no way that going on a cruise could be a good idea. I'm not a big cruise guy to begin with. Yeah, me neither. So this doesn't really help my cause in terms of getting me on a boat with a thousand other people, even though they sail to nice places. I find something, as we sort of look at other examples by decision by PR, I'm thinking about some of the good ones. And I remember going back in time, I don't know why this is stitched in my mind so indelibly, but when Tylenol had that poisoning issue back in the early 80s. And that was an existential crisis for that brand. There were people who were like, okay, Tylenol equals poison. What do we do? They pulled the shelves of everything. And as I went back to kind of think about this a little bit, I just remembered how they got on 60 Minutes. They got everywhere and just said, we're going to do something different. And then they pulled all the pills. I guess they caught the person who did the poisoning. And then they had sort of the security component added on to the pill bottles. And it created a good outcome. And it was something where I think that Tylenol was certainly doing the right thing. They were doing something that was going to be in the public health interest to do it. And it was in their business interest to do it. I mean, they were looking at losing the brand completely. But then the PR aspect, the tactics around that were indelibly good. I thought that that was an interesting example. And 
Any others come to mind where the PR aspect is so inextricably woven into what's going on that it looks like that's part of what's driving the strategy? I think that that is a good one. I look at the crisis management world and I think of it in terms of, gosh, I don't know how to do that. But in trying to sort of reverse engineer what has been done, I mean, you see good strategies. And I think that the key to the Tylenol strategy was that somebody said, look, we got to look after the long-term value of this brand and we've got to do the right thing no matter what it does in the short term. And I have no idea what the impact on their earnings and all those things were, but I would imagine that it was pretty terrible in that period of time. But in the long run, they did the right thing. And the sort of coming clean strategy seems to have been the right thing, whereas other situations where it's deny, 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 walk back, admit, 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 then that seems to be less well-received. I'm trying to think of some other ones that sort of kick in. In the meantime, you know, I put my lawyer hat back on, and I have only been around a couple of these situations where there is a real tension between the PR strategy and the legal strategy for a lot of these things, where as you described, it may not be in your legal interests to be publicly forthright on a lot of different things, especially if you don't have all the facts in place. There are questions as to whether you knew or didn't know or should have known at a period of time, uh, especially when you have the real fog of war that descends whenever there's chaos. But I think that's where the real judgment and the big bucks come into play. For those people that are part of those decisions, the legal advice is invariably it may not necessarily be straightforward, but it's usually not too complicated. You've got a set of facts and you have to deal with the facts and the legal system rewards and punishes various components of that. But the PR world, there can be punishment beyond just what happens in the legal arena. And that's where I thought the Tylenol case was particularly adept in that I think they had certainly the legal team in the room while they're figuring this stuff out. And the executive team went ahead and they created a sort of multivariable strategy where it took in line the A, doing the right thing, B, making sure they were doing things correctly from a legal point of view, C, trying to make sure that they didn't kill their business while they were working through all that. And you know, finally, D, trying to maintain that PR and the brand so that there was something to build off of going forward and that their investment in a lot of those concepts didn't just go to dust immediately. It's a fascinating thing and sort of strategy by PR. We look at it and, you know, to get back to Greta and it must be a bad strategy because I can't remember this German woman's name on the other side of it. I remember Greta real well. The other one. Naomi side. Naomi. I think the issue there is to say it's almost like they're skipping a step and the, the people who are using Naomi, they haven't quite built their fact pattern well enough in order for her to be that effective. Suddenly, listening to what you're saying, I'm drawn back to a man whose first name I can't even remember, but his last name was Townsend. And he was the head of Avis. And he wrote a book. And one of the elements of the book, as I remember it, this would have been, gosh knows, maybe 30, 40 years ago. One of the elements of the book was from the perspective of a CEO, how do you deal with lawyers? And his advice was to say, this is the decision, who pays the fines and who goes to jail. In other words, he was minimizing the impact of 
the legal advice of what you were supposed to do and clearly coming down on the side of presumably doing what he perceived to be the right thing. As I recall, and maybe one of our listeners is going to say, oh, no, you had it all wrong, Hayden. Well, okay, fair enough. As I recall, he only spoke about lawyers. And I'm wondering if the book rewritten today might also take into account publicists, because 40 or 50 years ago, image was less important than reality. And today, it appears to me that image has at least caught up with reality, and if not surpassed it. Well, it's certainly a major component of any sort of branding strategy or any sort of goodwill accretion or anything like that. I mean, there are significant dollars devoted to it, not that there weren't before, but even more so now that it's a big deal. I go back a little bit on the legal side of things and many of the executives that I've ever run into when doing a cost-benefit analysis of going through the legal process, whether they're being sued for something commercial or internally for an HR issue or something like that. I think that the, and this might be where the PR aspect really stitches in, there is a huge incentive to settle to sort of get the problem behind you from a cost perspective. Not only is the legal process expensive, but the risks are massive, not only from a dollar perspective insofar as what the legal controversy is. You know, if you have a tort or an HR issue, you, know, you could be on the hook for big bucks and you know, want to take that off the table as quickly as you can. But from a PR perspective, those issues linger. I look at Wells Fargo, for instance, and the damage to the brand and the reputation and the PR element of what they did, they're still recovering from that. I can't even, certainly the opening up checking accounts when you didn't really need them and that type of thing, but it's spread into other areas. Where do you come out on that? The news cycle has gotten so quick that in many ways, if you settle and move on, people forget quickly. But if you have lots of these in place or you have a culture where there are issues that just don't seem to go away or they multiply, at what point do you turn the corner? And then from a PR perspective, you've kind of lost it. It seems to me there's little doubt that the phenomenon that you are describing has tilted the playing field. And so the person who wants to smear your brand or your reputation has a stronger hand today than he might have had in the past. And it's a different landscape. And you have to respond differently. The settlements are greater. The payouts to those who benefit from smearing somebody else's brand, whether legitimately or not legitimately, the payouts are greater. Uh, so that person has a much stronger hand than they would have 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it's just part of the landscape. And you have to be mindful of taking that into account and making your decisions accordingly. So the executive who has to deal with it just attaches a different weight to that. We talk about ESG investing, which is environmental, social, and governance principles applied to analyzing companies and their effectiveness in addition to sort of the business aspects and whether they're driving sales and whether they're profitable and so on and so forth. And this is worth its own podcast because I have lots of different thoughts on the subject. But one thing that's not very well scored or thought about in that framework is the concept of reputation slash PR uh, for these companies. And in some ways, if you have a good reputation in being environmental or having good social programs or good 
corporate governance that ascribes its own reputation in many ways. But the idea of strategy by PR seems to be completely eliminated from that. And I wonder if you think that that's something that for the person who's analyzing a business, whether that integration of PR into the decision-making process is something that's well understood from an investor perspective. I doubt it's well understood, but it does seem to me that it is potentially significant. And a way that strikes me as important is in a essentially a full employment economy. And let's assume pre-coronavirus on this, where unemployment rates were extremely low, very hard to get people to come and do things, perhaps a more socially aware young cohort of workers. If a company has a terrible reputation for things that are important to people that they need to come to work for them, that is going to have an adverse impact on the company, albeit perhaps over a long term. And so it seems if you can't hire the people you need because you have a crummy reputation, that strikes me as a factor that is worth considering in making a long-term investment. Well, why don't we leave it there? I think we could probably branch off into 10 other podcast topics based on this, but I think this PR aspect of it, it goes to internet culture, it goes to social media, it goes to regular media, and it's something that I think as people are starting to borrow from those elements and as they forget the concept of being good or great at something underneath it or having a good set of facts, it's creating a lot of distortions. Any final thoughts? It may make it hard to do the right thing if the right thing is not also the popular thing. That was well said and chilling. <laughs> anyway, great to hear from you, Haven, and let's talk soon. I look forward to it. Thanks, Fraser. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.